Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Scripture reading this morning is again going to be Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 uh, through chapter 6 verse 12. Hebrews chapter 5 beginning at verse 11. If you're using one of the church's pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 1003. So I said this is our third Sunday in these verses, and I think we will come to the conclusion of them this morning. Uh, But our focus this morning will be uh, on that final section, beginning at verse 7, but that we might hear it all uh, together. Uh, I will be reading uh, the entire passage. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. This is the very word of God. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those who have for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. But we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father, as we come before you again this morning, we ask that the same Spirit who inspired the author to write these words would now be at work in and through this Word, in us, to open our eyes to the truth, open our hearts to receive it, and to strengthen us that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. Give us ears to hear this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we have seen the last two Sundays, this passage is addressed to the sluggish. It is addressed to sluggish Christians, to to those who have become sluggish in their obedience, to those who for one reason or another have have set aside their repent, live according to their own desires, according to their own will, rather than bowing before their king 
and accepting His will for their lives. And because this passage is for sluggish Christians, it means that this passage is for us. Because we know all too well that the temptation to become sluggish is common to us all. We have all felt it. For one reason or another, we have felt the temptation to set aside our endeavor after new obedience, if even only for a time. It may be that it was, it was becoming too costly. It was, it was too costly at home, or it was too costly at work, or it was too costly in our, in our relationships with our, with our neighbors, and we were, we were tired of, of bearing that cost. And so we are toying with the idea of maybe setting aside our obedience for a time, doing it our own way, just, just to get a break. Or maybe it's that a favorite sin has, has recaptured our attention and we are tired of, of resisting the desire to have it, and we, we want it just for a moment. I can remember working with people who would, who would tell me that I was, I was good all week, I deserved the weekend off. They, they, they rewarded themselves with some favorite sin. And how often do we think in tempted? It's easy to, to feel the pull, to feel the desire to become sluggish in our obedience. And I would suggest to you that it's possible, even likely, that there are some here this morning who are not only being tempted, but who have actually become sluggish. They have actually given in. They have actually set aside their repentance and are now walking in their own way. But wherever you find yourself this morning, whether you are feeling the temptation or whether you are already fallen, the author is speaking to you this morning. And he is calling you to forsake that sluggishness and to press on towards maturity in Christ. But he wants you to realize that you will only be able, if you do it in humble reliance upon the empowering grace of God. We will go on to maturity only if God permits. We aren't able to get there on our own. We will only ever make real progress if we go in the strength that he so graciously supplies. And therefore we must Approach His throne of grace for help in our hour of need. That's what this text is about. He is, he is trying to drive us to Christ and to help us get there this morning. Not only has he, has he shown us the problem, not only has He warned us, but He now wants us to see the urgency of our situation, but also the strength that true hope of the Gospel can provide. We begin with the urgency of the situation. We, we see this in, in verses 7 and 8. The author shows us the, the urgency of the situation by, by giving us an illustration of, of two types of land. Notice, notice what he says. Beginning in verse 7, he says, Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it was cultivated, that land receives a blessing from God. So, so you, can, you can see the picture. There is, there is land that has, that has received the refreshing rain of God. It, is, it has been well watered like the Garden of Eden. And in response to that watering, it has brought forth a useful crop. Now we know that that useful crop, the, the crop that, that the author has in mind, is, is the crop of the fruits of righteousness. It is, it is the life of, of love and obedience that we are called to Live. It's the same crop that, that Jesus refers to in his parable of the soils. It is this abundant harvest of the Christian life, the, the harvest that brings praise to the glory of God who has given the growth. 
But notice, the author says there is another type of land. There is a, another type of land, a type of land that does not bring forth fruit, but rather, even though it has received the same rain, it brings forth, brings forth nothing but, but thorns and thistles. It brings forth nothing but the fruit of the fall, but the, the fruit of, of sin and death in our lives. It does not bring forth the fruit of righteousness that is, that is called for, but, but it simply brings forth the works of the flesh that Paul describes so graphically in Galatians chapter 5. And what does the author say about that land? What does he, he say about this, this type of land? He, he says that that land is worthless and near to being cursed. Now the language of worthless is, is language that is really used throughout the scripture. We actually saw it in our study of, of uh, 1 Samuel this last Wednesday. It, it is language that, that describes someone who will not stand in the judgment. They have no worth. They have no value. On that day, they will be condemned. And that's what it means when he says he is near to being cursed. We might hear that in spatial terms as if they were near, but they, they just escaped. That's not what the author means. But rather, he is, he is speaking temporally. They are near. That the, the judgment is about to come. It is near to falling. And the judgment when it comes is that that land will be burned. That is language of condemnation. That is language of eternal judgment. And that's really the point that the author is making here. The point that the author is driving home is that what we are talking about here is not a minor thing, but we are talking about here is our eternal destinies. What is at stake is our eternal salvation. That's what the author wants us to see. Some today, they, they, they understand that, that there are people who are not living according to their profession. They understand that there are, there are people who are not living out their faith. And, and they know that that's not ideal, but they're not sure it's that big a deal. Sure, if you fail to obey, you, you may miss out on some of God's rewards. You may miss out on God's best for your life. But you won't miss out on salvation. After all, salvation is by grace through faith. It's not based on works. And therefore, the thinking goes, you, you can have Jesus as your Savior without bowing to Him as your Lord. It's, it's not ideal, but it's still salvation. What the author of Hebrews wants you to see, what he wants the Hebrews to see, what he wants us to see this morning, is that that way of thinking is grossly misinformed. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior, but refuse to bow to Him as your Lord. It is simply not true. It's, it's the point that the author made actually earlier in, in chapter 5, if you'll scan back up the page to, to verse 9. Remember what he says there. He, speaking of Jesus, he says that, that being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Now we, we talked about that verse at, at some length. I can't go back through it all this, this morning. The, the author is not there speaking of, of salvation by works. He's not saying that if we obey, we will somehow merit Jesus' salvation. But what he is suggesting, and what he is desperate for the Hebrews to see, is that a life of obedience is a life of faith. Obedience is the, the fruit of faith. Not perfect obedience. 
Not perpetual obedience. We will, we will never obey perfectly in this life. We will all continue to fall short. Jesus knew we would continue to fall short. It's why he taught us to pray that prayer, which, which includes a, a petition for the forgiveness of our daily sins. But, if we do not bow to him as our Lord, if we do not devote ourselves to obedience to our King, then we do not have saving faith. That's what the author wants us to see. You cannot choose to, to reject Jesus as your Lord and still claim him as your Savior. If you do not bow to him, he is not your Savior. That's the point that this illustration is driving home. The land that brings forth only thorns and thistles is near to being cursed. And the end of it will be to be burned. This is why our confession says that while faith alone is the instrument of our justification, it is by faith alone that we are reconciled to God, forgiven and, and adopted as, as His children. Faith alone is the instrument of our justification, but at the same time, it also says that without repentance, without turning from our sin to God with the full purpose of endeavoring after new obedience, without that repentance, none will be saved. There is no salvation without repentance. The modern idea of having Jesus as Savior without Him being your Lord is a myth never taught in the Scriptures. And we must see it. We must understand what is at stake when we are being tempted to, to set aside our repentance, when we are being tempted to, to, to go our own way, to reject His Word, and to, to live according to our own terms. Without true repentance, a person will not be saved. We're not saved by our repentance, but we will not be saved without it. And that's why the author's call in these verses is so urgent. If you, if you reject repentance, if, if you set it aside, if, you're, if you become sluggish in it, your need is urgent. And you need to feel the urgency so that you will call out to God for, for the mercy that your eternal life depends upon. Because you need Him to be at work in you. You need Him to be stirring you up to, to love and good works. You need Him to be causing your love to abound more and more. You need Him to be bringing forth a, a, a harvest of righteousness to the praise of His glory in your life. You need to be going to Him for the help you need when you become sluggish or, or tempted to, to take a break from the life of obedience. But it's not only that the author wants you to know your situation is urgent. He, want, he not only wants you to take this, this, this temptation seriously, he also wants you to know that when you cry out to him, you will be heard. You see, we can cry out to God in our hour of need. We can cry out to him even when the, the temptation to sluggishness is weighing us down, even when we've already given into it. We can cry out to him with Confidence, because we know it is His good pleasure to answer such prayers. We do not have to wonder whether or not He will be with us. We do not have to, to wonder whether or not He will grant us the grace to turn from our sins back to Him. We can pray confidently, 
because he has promised to answer such prayers. It's, it's this confidence that we see in the author's assurance concerning the Hebrews. Again, remember, the, the author is warning the Hebrews to forsake their, their sluggishness. He's, he's warning them that they, they must renew their repentance. But he doesn't have any doubt as to how they will receive his warning. He doesn't have any doubt as to whether they will actually turn to God for the mercy they need to renew their repentance. Notice what he says. He is, he is confident of better things. He is sure of better things. Things concerning salvation. Now, I know I've had that same sort of confidence sometimes with, with my own children. With my oldest daughter now living in New York City and my, my oldest son now driving and able to, to go out with his, his friends and to be out at all hours and me not know where he is or, or what he is doing, there are serious things to warn them about. There are life and death, literally life and death things to, to warn them about. And I do warn them, and I, and I want them to feel the urgency of those warnings. But when I speak to them, I am sure of better things. I am confident that they will heed my warning, that they will respond accordingly. I have, I have a confidence in them, and it's that same sort of confidence that the author is expressing with regard to the, to the Hebrews, only his confidence is even more sure. But why? Why is he so sure why is he so sure that they will heed his warning? Why is he so sure that they will actually respond? What, upon what is his confidence based? Well, notice he, he tells us in verse 10. He, he tells us in verse 10 that he is sure of better things concerning them, for God is not unjust so as to overlook their work and their love that they have done in his name. God is not unjust. It is the justice of God that is the foundation of his assurance. Now again, in a, in a congregation that believes so firmly in salvation by grace, that, that phrase can be a bit troubling. We've probably all heard R.C. Sproul at one point or another say that what you want from God is, is not justice but mercy. Because if God gave us justice, if God gave us what he deserved then what we would receive from him would be condemnation and not blessing. How then can the author appeal to the justice of God as a reason for assurance that the Hebrews will, in fact, be saved? It seems, it seems odd, but we must remember that what the author is talking about here is not justice apart from Christ, but rather justice in Christ. Yes, apart from Christ, God's justice would condemn us, but do you understand that in Christ, it is God's justice that forgives us? It's what John says in, in 1 John chapter 1. He says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, to forgive us. Why? How can, how can the forgiveness of our sins be just? Well, it's not because we have earned the forgiveness. It's not somehow because we are worthy of another chance. What makes God just when he forgives us is his own promise. 
You see, God is the one who so loved the world and therefore put forth his son as the sacrifice for our sins. God is the one who offered him up as the propitiation. And God is the one who said, all who call upon the name of his, of my son will be saved. This is what I will do. And a righteous God does what he says. A righteous God does not lie. And therefore God has bound himself by his own promise to say that my righteousness compels me, that when you call upon the name of my Son, you will be forgiven. If you confess your sins, I will be righteous and just to forgive you. See, it's not, it's not that God's justice is tied to our merit, but rather God's justice is tied to his own promise, to what he has said he will do for those who call upon the name of the Lord. And seeing this helps us to understand uh, what, what the author means when he says that God is not so unjust as to overlook their work and their love. Again, the author is appealing to the Hebrews' works. He, he's appealing to, 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 their, uh, to their love for the saints. Not suggesting that those, those things are meritorious in themselves, not suggesting that they somehow obligate God apart from Christ, but understanding that the works that they have done, the love that they have shown for the saints in the name of Jesus, that all of that is the expression of their faith. He knows that, that the work and the love that they have done for His name that these are the outworking of true faith, even as Paul says in, in Galatians when he speaks of our faith expressing itself in love. And thus, the author is confident, the author is assured of better things concerning the Hebrews because he has seen their faith expressed in tangible ways. And he knows that, that that faith expressed in tangible ways is the gift of God to them. It is the gift that, that has united them to Christ. It is the gift that has received in Christ's name every spiritual blessing. And so he knows that if God has done that work in them, and if he has seen the evidence of it, and if he still sees, at least in some measure, the evidence of it, notice that their, their, their repentance is flagging, but it's not completely gone. In some measure, they still do love and, and serve the saints, the author says. Because the author sees this and because he has seen it in their lives, he is assured of better things regarding the Hebrews. And I want us to see at least two things in the author's confidence. The, the first thing I want you to see is, is, is theological. I want you to see that the author's confidence is rooted in the doctrine of perseverance. We talked about how this passage can be read in, in a accord with perseverance last Sunday. But I want you to see here that this, that this passage actually depends upon the doctrine of perseverance. The, the author's assurance only makes sense if God is the kind of God who always brings to completion the good works that he has begun. You see, it is, a, it is the evidence of, of the work begun that gives him confidence that God will bring it to completion. It's seeing the, the works of faith which are which are the evidence of, of the Spirit at work in their lives that, that convinces him that, that better things are in store for the Hebrews, that God will not abandon them because he has begun a good work in them. The author knows that, that their past repentance and their, their past obedience 
was the gift of God, and therefore he is confident that God will continue that good work. And what I want you to see is this, that that theological truth, the the doctrine of of perseverance, it's, it's not just a doctrine to argue about, but it's a doctrine that gives us confidence in the day to day. Just as it gives the author confidence about the Hebrews, it ought to give us confidence. It it ought to give us confidence as we approach God again and again and again, day after day after day, as as we ask Him to renew our repentance each morning, as we ask Him to again grant us the strength to walk in obedience each new day. We can have confidence that God, the God who began a good work in us, will not fail to carry it on to completion. He will. Grant us what we ask for the name of his Son. But of course, the second thing I want us to see here is practical. I want us to see that, that in the author's assurance, we, we have a model for how to go after one who is straying. Whether that one be a, a brother or a sister in the faith, or whether that one be our own soul. Remember, we can can speak to our soul. The the psalmist does it. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? We can can speak to our souls. We we can speak to ourselves, and we can speak to one another because we are a family. We are united in Christ. And when one is, is going astray, those who are spiritual, those who are still walking in the Spirit, should go after them, the Scripture says. And here is how we do it. We go after him the way that the author is here going after the Hebrews. He is earnest. He he does not deny the seriousness of the situation. He does not downplay their sin. He does not suggest that it's not a big deal because salvation is by grace. He is earnest. He recognizes the urgency of the situation, but at the same time, he is hopeful, confident that God will do what he has promised to do. And when we are dealing with Our brothers, even when we're dealing with our own soul, our perspective is not infallible. We can sometimes see evidence of saving faith where there is none. We can be fooled. But we should not allow that reality, that that possibility, to blind us to to the reality that when we are dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and when we see them strain and sin, we ought to have great hope for them. We ought not to write them off We ought not to suggest, well, obviously, they're gone. But rather, we ought to be confident and we ought to pursue them with hope, knowing that the Spirit is at work and it is the Spirit who can turn them around. We ought to have the same hope even when we pursue our own soul, when our own soul is struggling with temptation, when we are going after our own straying heart. We ought to go after our heart with confidence, knowing that God is able to do what he pleases, and it is his good pleasure to draw his children back to him. That's the assurance that the author has, and that's the assurance we must have for ourselves. In fact, that's what the author wants the Hebrews to have for themselves. We, we see this at the end of the passage, that the author not only has this assurance regarding the Hebrews, but he wants them to have this assurance regarding themselves. Notice what he writes. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Do you see it? The author wants the Hebrews to be earnest to pursue assurance for themselves. 
He knows it's not enough for him to have assurance about them. They need to have assurance about themselves. And he wants them to pursue that assurance earnestly. What does that mean? What, do we, what does it mean to, to pursue assurance? How do, we, how do we pursue assurance of salvation? I want to suggest to you that, that assurance really consists of, of two parts. When we're speaking of assurance of our salvation, there is first the assurance in Christ. That is, the, there is the assurance in who He is for us. There is the, the assurance that, that He is the, the, the Redeemer of God's elect and that He has died and, and risen again for us and that all who call upon Him will be saved. There is, there is an assurance that He is the Savior. But there is also assurance that we are in Him. There's a, there's a, a personal component. Uh, the, the assurance, not only that Christ is the Savior. You see, you can believe that Christ is the Savior, but... but but wonder whether or not you are actually in Him. You can know that Christ is the Savior and doubt that you are in Him. You, are, you can know that Christ is the Savior and believe that you are far from Him. Even believers have those types of experiences where they feel cut off, where they feel far removed. And so assurance must, not, must include not only assurance in Christ, but assurance that we personally are in Christ. And if assurance must have both parts, then the pursuit of assurance must include the pursuit of both aspects. And so we develop assurance in Christ. We, we develop assurance in who He is for us by setting our minds on Him, by, by meditating upon who He is as, as He is revealed to us in the Scriptures, and by, by praying that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see Him. You see, Scripture tells us that, that one of the sources of assurance is that the Spirit works with our spirit to, to testify that we are indeed the children of God in Christ. And so we must ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, but then we must look at the revelation. We must set our eyes upon the revelation. We must, we must devote ourselves to, to the Word as Christ has revealed to us from beginning to end. As I mentioned, on, on Wednesday nights right now, we are studying 1 Samuel. Sam is leading us through, through a study. And, and in that study, what we are doing is we are seeking to set our eyes upon Christ. We are asking, how does this narrative point us to the coming Savior? Point us to the one we so desperately need. We do it when we look at this, the book of Hebrews. We, we do it when we read the Gospels everywhere from the beginning to the end. We ask God to reveal to us our Savior, to open our eyes to see Him for who He is and who He is for us. And that's one of the reasons it's so important for you to, to be here when we gather together as the people of God. Because yes, it is important for you to read the Scriptures for yourself, but God's design is that it is especially when the people of God are gathered and His Word is read and taught by those gifted for that purpose, that we will see Christ and that we will see Him as He is. And so we, we, we begin to develop our assurance of who Christ is for us by, by looking to the Scriptures in the power of the Spirit. But as I said, we must also develop our assurance that we are personally in Him that we are in Christ. So how do we do that? How do we develop this assurance that, that we are in Christ? I want to suggest to you that we do that by looking to ourselves in the power of the Spirit, in the light of 
the Word. You see, it is God's Word that gives us the standard against which we must be measured, and it is the Spirit that gives us eyes to see clearly. But we must look at ourselves. We, we're sometimes reticent to do that. We, we sometimes say, hey, we, we, we always have to be looking at Christ, and that is true. And, and one pastor famously said, for every time you look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's a good practice. But there does need to be that one look at ourselves. We do need to examine ourselves if we are going to develop our assurance. But what is it that we are looking for? Well, the author's already given us a clue. He's already given us a clue when he, when he mentions the Hebrews' love and, and work. It is those expressions of faith that we are looking for. The, the whole letter of 1 John actually gives us tests that we can, can use. It's written that we might know that we have Salvation in Christ. It's a, it's a letter all about assurance. And in that letter, he asks three questions over and over again. He says, do you confess Jesus Christ as Lord? Do you profess to bow to him as your king? That's first. Do you, do you acknowledge him to be your, your Lord? Do you actually seek to obey his commandments? And does that obedience to his commandments look like love for your neighbor? Do you see Work and love, as the author of Hebrews says here. Do you see work and love in his name? You see, that's all three tests. Do we see work and love in his name in our lives? Because if you are in Christ, if you have faith in him, that faith by the power of the Spirit will bring forth fruit. Now understand... We sometimes need help seeing ourselves clearly. It's another reason why we need to be in community with other believers. We all know that, that sometimes all we can see is our own sin. Sometimes all we can see is the ways that we have fallen short. It's the song that Austin sang. Sometimes we don't believe the truth about ourselves and we can't see it. I've had that experience twice in my life where, where I just simply could not see the, the fruit of God's work in my life. And I can remember going to others. Once uh, when I was in middle school, going to a youth pastor. Once when I was in college, going to one of my professors. And I was helped by them showing me in my own life what I couldn't see for myself. It's the way the body works. It's the way the community works. So I'm not telling you to go off into the desert all alone by yourself to examine yourself. That will lead you to bad places. But in community, as we are known and as we know one another, is there evidence of God's work in our lives? Is he at work bringing forth fruit? You are not yet where you need to be, but has he brought you from where you were? Is he bringing you towards maturity? Is he granting to you some measure of growth? That's the question that we must ask. But what if at the end of the day, what if, what if you look at yourself and others look at you and there is no evidence? What if you see no evidence that, that God is at work in your life? That's a real possibility too. And if that is your experience, if, if you do not see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work, if you do not see the, the fruit of, of repentance in your life, then know that today is the day of salvation. And today, even now, through this text, He is speaking to you and He is calling you not to renew your repentance, but to repent for the first time. 
Turn to him even today. For today is still a day of salvation. And if you call upon him today, if you turn from your sin today to him, acknowledging him to be your Savior and Lord, then even today he will grant to you new life in Christ. That is what the author is calling us to. Whether you need to repent for the first time or whether you need to be renewed in your repentance, the author is calling you to turn to him for help in your time of need. Because he knows that if we do this, if we turn to him knowing full well the hope of the gospel, then that gospel will not fail to bring forth fruit. Notice what he says. He wants them to have this assurance of their own salvation so that they might not be sluggish. That's where this all began. It began with sluggish Christians. And he is saying, listen, if you will look to Christ with confidence in who he is, and confidence that, that you have rested upon him, then his grace will flow into your life. And as the prophet says, his word will not return void. It will not fail to bring forth a harvest. So whether you are repenting for the first time or whether you are renewing your repentance for the hundredth time this morning, know this, that if you call upon his name, he will be gracious. He will give you the mercy and the help that you need. And his grace will be effectual to bring forth in your life the fruits of new repentance to the praise of his glory. And because his grace never fails, because he never fails to, to accomplish his purposes, because he is the sovereign king who does whatever he pleases, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you that it is an effectual grace. Father God, would you, would you be at work renewing us in repentance and bringing forth the fruit of that repentance in abundance to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.